right, well, good morning. This morning we're going to be in the United Kingdom era of our background studies. Uh, before we do that, I want to take just a minute to look at the syllabus with you. I was going to do this before I started recording, but I think because of the parking situation, we'll have some people coming in a little bit later than normal. So I'll put it on the recording in case they, they want to listen to it or whatever. Um, we're at... Uh, March 9th, so we have this week and next week, and then we have spring break. So we meet next week, but then after that we have spring break. And that also means that you have another exam at the end of next week. So yay, right? Um, so that'll be two out of the three. That also means that after spring break, we have, it looks like about six weeks left, there's kind of the middle section was a little shorter, unfortunately, but um, that's how it kind of worked out. But that also means that you have a research paper that you need to be getting ready to work on if you're not already working on it, all right? So don't forget about those dates. I would like when you come back from spring break, which would be March the 30th, I would like to have topics. That'll be excellent. Okay? So on the syllabus, April 20th, it says research paper, title page, and bibliography due. And then the 27th, the paper is due. So one week before the paper, um, title page and bibliography is due. Now, in reality, I would suggest that you even turn it in before that if you have it available. Um, that gives you time to get feedback if necessary and work on anything. And I'll just say that for anybody. If you have work that you want to submit early, <coughs> or you just want me to review something early, uh, I'll be happy to do that. So when we come back from spring break, though, I need um, titles of, of topics for papers. Okay? So today we're going to look at United Kingdom, United Monarchy, same thing. Next week we'll look at the divided, and then you'll have your exam. Your exam will cover from Canaan through the divided kingdom, and I'll try to do what I did last time, and I'll try to create a little um, review guideline. Uh, it's basically just topics, but um, if it helps you focus a little bit, that's fine. All right, any questions on that? Are we all good? Robert, how are you this morning? Oh, fantastic. Good. So next week we have a regular class and the quiz nine, which is March 16, following the, the following the, the yeah so, next week, right? yeah, so next week we'll have a regular class. We'll discuss the divided monarchy. You'll have your regular quiz okay. at the end of the week, and th then you'll have the exam also. And I can extend the exam just like I did last time till Tuesday or something like that instead of, instead of just Sunday. All right? That's no big deal. I, I don't care. All right? So good deal. Rebecca, how are you doing today? Good. Excellent. All right. So let's jump into our studies this morning then with the United Kingdom and the backgrounds thereof. All right. As we jump into this time period, one of the things we want to keep in mind is what's going on in the rest of the world and what's going on in Israel and uh, Canaan. And uh, for my own sanity, if, if I confuse things, um, I just ask for your forgiveness. Because I'm, I'm working three different uh, time periods in history, and sometimes I get them confused in my mind. So this morning we want to look at how we move from 
uh, the time period of the Judges, which is what we looked at last week. And we move into a time when God is going to take his people and he's going to uh, bring them together uh, to form a nation. They're really not a nation right now. They're, they're a bunch of uh, small groups of people led by uh, tribal leaders, chieftains, judges, etc. as necessary for um, dealing with the oppressors. And they're going to request uh, a king. And so you can see from here some of the overlapping time periods. And who I want to focus specifically on for the beginning of this unit this morning is Samuel. And so Samuel is this brown um, line that goes overlapping with Eli and all the way over overlapping with both Saul and David. But specifically, I want you to catch the fact that he overlaps with Samson. So when Judges ends and the last judge, if you ask someone who the last judge is, depending on who you ask, you might get three or four or five or six different answers. And technically, the right answer just depends on what you're wanting to know. So you look at the book of Judges and you think Samson is the last judge, Mm -hmm. but Samuel is probably really the last judge. So Samson is in this time period right here. And Samuel was alive during that time period, so that's important for us to understand. The whole Philistine thing we'll talk about in a little bit also, but that's going on as well. So Samuel is a very important character, and he covers that whole uh, time period. These are some of the um, excursions. That's the wrong word. Battles. I was trying to think of the other word for battles. Um, that we will look at today um, in X's there. Ebenezer, Mizpah, Jabesh Gilead, Michmash, the Amalekites, David and Goliath, Mount Gilboa, and David at Ziklag, if we get through all these. And you can see here also you've got the Philistine oppression uh, for 40 years. So as soon as you see something like that, that rings the bell of the whole judges time periods. Because you've got this time period of oppression, then you've got a judge raised up, then you've got some deliverance and peace, and then they repeat the cycle. So during the whole of the 11th century BC, Israel was in the process of shifting from the rule of judges to that of a monarch. As the Philistines were growing in strength, it was almost inevitable that they would come into conflict with, conflict with Israel. And so at the beginning of this century, somewhere around 1100 B.C., Samuel was born to parents who lived in Ramathame, 1 Samuel 1.1. Very likely the same place where Samuel later made his home as an adult. And so this is the, the time period and, and the historical context of what's going on there. Probably one reason the tabernacle was located there was the, at Shiloh was the rugged terrain of the hill country of Ephraim that surrounded Shiloh, providing natural topographical defenses, making it difficult for Israel's enemies to reach it. So when Samuel was about 25, um, about the same time that Samson became active. So think Samson is beginning to do the activities related to being a judge. And Samson is then around 25... He is beginning to enter into his ministry as well. So the Philistines, um, they muster their forces at Aphek, which we're going to look at in, in a few minutes, to prepare for an invasion. And that's, that's where this will, will begin with the, the battle scenario. So that's kind of an intro to it. All right. These are some of the places that we'll be, be looking at here this morning. Um, Gibeah of Saul is, is here. Gibeon is, is right over here. And what else? Well, Bethlehem, that's David's home, is here. And then the Elah Valley, 
will come into play today as well. So if you kind of just take your fist and put it to the left and the north side of, of the Dead Sea, that's kind of the area that we'll be focusing on today. Remember from last week, the judges were kind of scattered all over. So some of them were up here, some were down here. And th that middle section will be the primary area that we'll be looking at this morning. Okay, Samuel is a transition figure. He is prophet, priest, and judge, but he is not king. Okay, so just, just think no king. All right, he's pretty much everything else. Prophet, priest, and judge. <clears throat> the books of Samuel themselves cover just under 100 years, detailing the transition from judges to the monarchy, Saul and David. Uh, uh, Solomon's not listed there because it's not in Samuel. He's in Kings. Uh, this rise of the king is accompanied by the rise of the prophets. Why is that? Because the prophets are the covenant forces. And they're there to keep the king, who's leading the people, in line. The background to the Davidic covenant and his kingship is in the books of Samuel. And Israel is called to repentance in chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. That's some of our historical um, context. A little bit more. During this time period, if you remember our, our map of the, the Fertile Crescent that we're always dealing with, who's over here? Assyria are over here, right? So Babylon, Assyria, alright? This area is what? Palestine. Okay, Palestine, Canaan, Promised Land. Alright, what's over here? Egypt, okay. This is the Mediterranean Sea, Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea, right? Euphrates and Tigris. Okay, so in the seesawing for the balance of powers, we're gonna continue to see that. Um, if you're in my next class, you're gonna see it again. It's, it's always what's going on. And so, who, who's got the power? Right? Egypt uh, does not interfere while Saul, David, and Solomon rule. So for the whole united monarchy, basically, 120 years, okay, Egypt is, is really not involved much. After Ramses III, there's no Egyptian king that crossed the border of Israel until the time of Rehoboam. Okay? Rehoboam is divided kingdom. That's after Solomon dies. And so you have this whole united kingdom time period where Egypt is pretty much... Now threat. After 1240 BC, the Hittites were in conflict with the migration of the Sea People that brought an end to their nation. So you got the Sea Peoples, which would be the Phoenicians, some of the Philistines, and some others, and the Hittites, okay? So they're in conflict, but then the Hittite capital was completely destroyed. So that and that's twelve that's twelve hundred. So that's a little bit before what we're talking about today. So that has also subsided. And then Assyria will not threaten Israel for almost 100 years, okay, after the division of Israel. Assyria threatened Israel for the first time under Shalmaneser III, and you can see the mid-800s. But we're in the 1100s right now. Prior to the Israel monarchy, there had been only one extension of Assyrian power into the west, Tiglath-Pileser in the 1100s to the 1078 area. Um, he brought his army as far as the Mediterranean. Still far north of Israel, but he couldn't make, maintain control. Why does any of that matter? Because this vacuum of power is what enables Israel to grow and to become um, a nation underneath a king to lead them. 
you still had the Egyptian or Babylonian or Assyrian or any of these powers still invading and buying for this area, uh, it would be a different scenario. And so at this exact time in history, God has created this vacuum of power, if you will, and he has brought his people into the promised land, and now they are going to begin to, to grow, and if they would obey him, then they'll stay in the land, and they would become a nation and a light to the world, the Gentiles. As we know, that's not exactly what happens. The Philistines had become the dominant force during the period of the Judges. So think about Samson, the end of the Judges era. The Iron Age, with the developing Philistine blacksmith and their weapons of war, as well as their chariots. We'll see in Samuel that one of the things they do is they uh, get rid of any uh, iron works that the Israelites have, and that makes them reliant upon the Philistine blacksmiths. All right. Um, one interesting thing that we did not you know, mention last week, but only the tribe of Asher, I think, had no judge during the judges' time period. So as I mentioned just a minute ago, you know, they were kind of all over the, the map there, the judges, and that's because God used them from all different tribes. <clears throat> so, the book of Samuel, let's talk about the life and the ministry of Samuel for a minute. How he comes about, what the circumstances of that are. His mother is barren. She can't have children. That's a common uh, theme in the scriptures. You start thinking about the, the women that were barren and then uh, the great things that God does through them. Now, we're, we're prone to see that as a motif or theme, which it is, and then maybe try to apply it to our own situation or someone's situation, and I would caution against doing that. Um, there were many more barren women than the few that we have in scriptures that then God took and did something special with. So, so Hannah, <coughs> Hannah's there, and she's in the temple, and uh, if you know the, the story there, you know that um, Eli thinks that she's drunk, and she says, oh, I'm, I'm not drunk. She's, she's not drunk. She's just a, a heartbroken woman. And God gives her a child, and she vows to give the, the child back to God for God's service. And so Samuel, um, like Samson, is a Nazarite. There's a Nazarite vow involved. And so we can already think in your head and compare and contrast uh, the two men and how they live out their lives. He's going to be raised by Eli. Eli is the priest. And Eli has two boys, Hophni and Phinehas, which are, are wicked. And uh, Samson is going to be raised by him in the, in the temple precinct and tabernacle precinct, and he is going to learn from Eli. In uh, chapter 3, verse 20, and then in Jeremiah, we see that uh, he is called as a prophet. You can see the verses on the screen also referencing the fact that he is priest and judge. The 1S is simply 1 Samuel. If there's nothing there, it also means 1 Samuel. I had to take them out because they ran into the map on the other side. This map simply shows some of the aspects of Samuel's ministry and, and his life. So the first one is in this area right here. This is where um, Hannah's prayer at Shiloh, um, that she then, a little while later, has her, her boy Samuel. Then as his life goes on, Samuel, uh, um, let's see, that's where she prayed, where am I? Okay, at Shiloh here. And then um, 
his board here, the Rama. Then you continue on. He ministers under Eli back at Shiloh. Okay, his mom brings him back, and she, she, she brings him a, a new coat each year. And God called him to a special service there. Then every year he would travel. We'll show this picture a little bit later, the circuit he does. Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah as a judge. So there's Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and then he would go back to his home. So he would circle through this area right here. All right. He um, then anointed Saul as the first king of Israel in Zuf, which they think is maybe around right here. And then he anointed David as the second king down here in Bethlehem. So again, you take your fist and you put it right there, and you can see we're pretty much doing all of our, our work right in that area. Samuel and Eli, a couple of comparisons, similarities. Samuel and Eli both uh, judged Israel. They both had two sons, and they both had wicked sons that were rejected. So you could further study that. You could do a paper on it if you want. Anyway, I just said it to everything, right? All right, so that's kind of the intro portion. All right, so then you get into chapter 4. In chapter 4, it says, the Lord continued to appear in Shiloh because there he revealed himself to Samuel by his word, and Samuel's words came to all of Israel. So now you've got this the prophetic aspect that is being uh, talked about there. Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped at Ebenezer while the Philistines camped at Aphek. Okay? So, boom, all of a sudden we're in a battle. So what happened here? Why are we suddenly in this battle? Philistines had been oppressing the Israelites for 20 years. So after 20 years of Philistine oppression, Israel attempts to end it by a direct military engagement. So basically it was like, we've had enough of this. We need to do something about this. And so um, the encounter was at Aphek in the, the plains of Sharon or Sharon. And Israel was defeated and they lost 4,000 men during this battle. So it did not work out well for them. The phrase Pentapolis refers to five cities, and that's the five cities of the Philistines. So Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and Gath, right there, those five. All right. Now Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they wrongly thought that the presence of the ark at the battlefront would help in the conflict. And so they took the ark from Shiloh, okay, which God didn't tell them to do this, but and they brought it to the 23 miles away to where their camp was set up um, at Ebenezer. And God did not bring favor with the disobedience, and again, defeat was experienced. And this time, 30,000 of Israelites fell, including Hophni and Phinehas, and then the ark was captured. So it's not going very well for them. All right? First battle, 4,000. Next, 30,000. They brought the ark 23 miles. Hophni and Phinehas killed. The news gets back to Eli. He hears about it. He dies. Then Phinehas' wife gives birth to Ichabod. She dies. Names him, the glory has departed Israel. What's going on? God's left the house. God's left the house. Amen. The people are rebellious. Um, Ebenezer means the stone of help, but they got no help that day. Um, they have rebellious hearts, as we'll see in our next class in Jeremiah. And when rebellious hearts are not repentant, then uh, God has to come in with the hammer. And, and that's what happens with that. And so, at Aphek, this is not.
a, a good thing for the Israelites, obviously. The excavations uh, show that the Philistines moved into the Israelite territory as far as Shiloh, um, which they destroyed. Shiloh was excavated by uh, Danish archaeologists in 1926 to 29, and again in 1932. And the city was destroyed by the, the Philistines during the 11th century. And this corresponds with what the, the Bible says as well. So they move in. The next diagram I have here is the actual uh, <coughs> battle routine and what happens with the ark after that. Okay, so you can see here that um, because of the, the failure in the battle, they, they bring the ark from Shiloh, how many miles? 23 or so. All right. They're camped at Ebenezer, the Philistines' Aphek, so they meet up, they battle it out, and they lose. The Philistines take the ark. Well, what do they do with the ark? Well, they take it to Ashdod, and they put it in their temple of Dagon. Why? Because that means that Dagon has conquered the Israelites and the god of the Israelites. So you got to compile all these gods. You know, these temples are probably filled with all these little gods of all these peoples and countries and areas that they've conquered. So if you know the story at all, it's actually kind of humorous from our perspective, you know, as we're reading it. Funny story. Yes, it is, yeah. You know, it makes a good story for, you know, the kids or whatever else. Now, you know, the cultural background isn't probably so good for the kids. But anyway, the ark gets in the, the Philistine hands, and they put it to um, Dagon. And what happens? Well, in the morning, he's fallen over. So Ooh. it's like he's worshiping who? Yahweh, right? Yeah, he's bowed over before the ark. All right? They stand him back up. You know, it's funny how you have to take care of your gods, right? So... <laughs> And the next morning, they find him again. He's, he's knocked over, and this time, what? He's missing body parts. Yep. So, you know, off with his head. So, th this is, again, a demonstration that, um, no, the, the ark is, is uh, and, and God, the ark representing God, is, is not just a toy. It is not superstition. That's what the Israelites were doing with it. They thought, oh, it's just the ark. We need the ark. You know, the little genie in a bottle. Well, God's not a genie in a bottle. And, and they were not walking with God, and so he was not with them. It's no different, really, than Samson. You know, when Samson got up that day, and he knew not that the Spirit had left him. Well, hello. Maybe you need to be talking to somebody. You know? He's not in the right relationship. He's not walking with God, and so God is not with him. In contrast, what did God uh, repeatedly tell uh, Joshua as he's getting ready to go into the Promised Land? He said, be strong, be courageous. Why? I will be with you. Right? So here we find the opposite of that uh, taking place. So anyways, the ark moves. It goes from Shiloh, Ebenezer, Aphek, goes down to Ashdod. And then um, it continues on to all of those cities there. I think it was about seven months that the ark began through this little uh, journey. With The purple is, is the Philistines. Okay, So this little seven-month deal. And uh, everybody starts getting diseases, tumors, whatever the translation is. There's a little bit of a debate over what that really means. But whatever it is, um, it's not good. There's plagues breaking out wherever this ark is going. And so the Philistines eventually decide what? Well, let's get rid of this thing. Um, this is not doing us any good. And so they do. They decide to get rid of it. Now, when they do, so now we're way down here. Okay, so it, w it was up here at Shiloh. So down here in the Sorek Valley, the ark gets returned to Israel, Beth Shemesh. 
Now, <coughs> before I go any further, I do have, um, I have a, a thing on Shiloh here, which I don't know if you can really see this, but it's a panoramic from Bible.ca. Um, and it's showing, basically, if you can see these hills here, and this is where the altar and tabernacle area would have been here at Shiloh. Okay, So that's what this is. But I also want to talk for a minute about um, Dagon in the, the next uh, slide. So this is the same area, area of the tabernacle they think was right here at uh, Tel Shiloh. Remember, Tel is the archaeological site. So at Shiloh. Kind of see the, the, the hilly nature of this whole thing. Roads. All right. This is another uh, diagram of the same thing. This just adds a little bit more information. So here's the seventh month ride coming out of Shiloh. All right. Go over here. And then you have the time period that the ark is here at Kiriath um, Jerim and until David brings it to uh, Jerusalem. And the time period is approximately that listed right there. 1001 to 960 ish. Alright. <clears throat> I must have moved some of my slides. I thought Dagon was next on my list here. Um, Okay, he's right after this one. So, in chapter 5, verse 1, the ark is in Ashdod. That's where the incident with Dagon happens. In 5, 8, it's in Gath. There's great confusion and people get tumors, which has also happened in Ashdod. In 5, 10, it's in Ekron and great confusion and tumors and people die. And so you can see that wherever it goes, it's bringing disaster on the Philistines. Now, Dagon... Dagon is pictured here in this image as a part fish. Now, there is a notion that Dagon is, is related to this fish aspect or fish god thing, but uh, most scholars don't put, in, put much stock in that. So, he's widely worshipped, originating from the middle Mesopotamia. So, all the way over here, okay, Dagon was worshipped. He's the primary deity of Gaza and Ashdod. The temple at Ashdod existed into the 2nd century B.C. when the city was known as Azotus. Philo, in the 2nd century A.D., suggests the name is related to grain, so some kind of grain god. So that would fit with what we talked about with the Canaanites and the agricultural cycle and the relationship to, to Baal and Asherah and, and all of those gods related to the necessary um, staple food. Another popular, though less likely, suggestion is his name is connected with Dag from fish. The Mari tablets describe activities of Dagon as leading in warfare, uh, fertility of the land, protector, and he communicates prophetically. By the time of Samuel, the Dagon cult was throughout Mesopotamia, Syria, and Palestine. So it's this whole area. Okay? It's the culture. So you know about the Baals, but Baals can be generic. You know, they're, they're gods. Um, Dagon is one of these. It was prevalent throughout this culture. The Israelites, just like us in our culture, 
have to decide how do we deal with that, how, how do we respond to that, etc. Um, that's the same information too, so you can read it, I guess. I tried editing this stuff in three different places this week, so that's probably why I have a duplicate here. <coughs> Last night I was finishing these up, and I accidentally closed them out or something, and I had three different PowerPoints, because I have two for my next class. So I had Gemini Lamentations and this one, and I accidentally closed them all out, and I couldn't find them. I didn't know where they were saved at, and yeah, so I panicked for a minute, but I was able to find them. <coughs> so after the Philistines have it, the Ark comes back into Israel. So in 6, 12 to 14, it's in Beth Shemek, which means house of the sun. Okay. Here is where the men die for looking into the ark. Now, this was a Levitical city. So why does that matter? Well, they should have known. Who are the Levites? They're the ones entrusted with taking care of the ark, right? So the Levites should have known about this. And they suffer the, the same abuses. So, then it goes in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, to Kiriath-Jerim, which is 10 miles okay, away. And the ark remains here until David brings it to Jerusalem. And you saw it on that previous map. So it stays there for quite some time. Jerusalem is only 8 miles away. Okay? Good morning. Um, why David chooses Jerusalem, we'll talk about in a little bit. But that is how the ark is, is brought back and where it stays this, we have the gathering at Mizpah, okay? About 20 years later, Israel begins seeking God. They remove the Baals, and Samuel instructs them to gather at Mizpah, chapter 7, verse 5. The Philistines probably saw this big assembly coming and thought that they were getting ready for war, and so decided to attack them. That's the thought, at least, Okay. This is probably shortly after Samson's slaughter of the 3,000 in the temple of Dagon also. All right? So the victory here ends the Philistine inroads until after Saul is made king in 1 Samuel 13. So there's a parallel here with Joshua as well. In Joshua, you had the alliance of five kings. You had the hail, the sun, and the moon incidents. You know, the hail came down, the, the sun stood still. Um, the pursuit to Beth Horon. In uh, Samuel chapter 7, you have an alliance of five kings again. There's this weather storm, all right? They pursue them down another valley. They regain from Ekron to Gath. So remember, that's, that's over here. So they, they pick up this Philistine territory and take that back. And then Samuel begins uh, the circuiting through those areas that we mentioned, Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and then his home in, in Ramah. And so this incident here and, and this first battle that um, ensues afterwards. This is that uh, cycle or circle of Samuel's ministry, okay? Gilgal, there's, there's Ramah, Mizpah, Bethel, okay? And he's, he's going through this little circuit each year. What's he doing? He's judging because he is 
prophet, priest, and judge, but not king. So, with that, we kind of come, going quickly of course, but we kind of come to Saul, chapter 9 through 14 of 1 Samuel still. And so, Saul comes on the scene, is the first king, human king, right? Um, And I just put that because part of the people's choosing of the king was, in a sense, a rejection of the king they already had, God. So this is about 1050 to 1010 BC. Each of these kings is 40-year reign, so it's easy to remember for you. Okay, uh, Saul, David, Solomon, 40, 40, 40, 120. All right. So what happens here is uh, Saul, as we mentioned earlier, was anointed privately. Okay, but that's not good enough to have a king, right? I mean, the people got to rally around him. The people got to recognize who the king is, and so. Samuel is going to have to have a, a public ceremony, something public for this to happen. And then, because currently you have the, the 12 tribes, and they all have their own leaders, they're going to have to have buy-in. And so how do you have buy-in? Well, when people are united against a common enemy, you can get some buy-in. And if you have a victory against a common enemy, well, then the people think that you might have good leadership skills, right? So that's what's going to happen. I had Jabesh Gilead. Tel Maklub is where archaeologists think that is. This is also where the wives were found for the Benjamites. Remember how the Benjamites were uh, slaughtered because of the refusal to deal with the concubine incident? One of the things in the book of Judges and, and Samuel is you keep seeing these references to the trial of Benjamin. It's, it's, once you pick up on it, it's in quite a few places. Um, in fact, in uh, Jeremiah, it shows up again. Um, So, wives were found here for the Benjamites in Judges 21. So, Saul sends oxen, just like who did? In Judges, who did that? Send out, it wasn't an oxen, though. Who butchered something and sent the pieces to the 12 tribes? Was it Jephthah? what led to the Benjamites being at war or being warred against and being almost wiped out. So Saul, who was also from Benjamin, right, um, sends out the message. And so who shows up? Okay, this is a subpoena. Come together. 30,000 from Judah and 300,000 others arrive. So he takes these 330,000, he divides them up. He's got three different armies, okay, about 100,000 each. And his first military battle is to defeat the Ammonites in 1 Samuel chapter 11. And because of this and the, and the victory here, he gets accepted as king by the people, and they have the coronation and the acceptance um, in Gilgal. Tel Maklub is best identified with Jabesh Gilead. Uh, Eusebius, Eusebius is, I think, actually probably a better pronunciation. The historian, he locates Jabesh Gilead in the mountains near the sixth milestone from Pella. Now, if you know what that means, it just means it's near Pella, on the road to Garasa. This description fits with um, what the archaeologists have found as well. So they found Iron Age pottery there. In biblical history, Jabesh Gilead is the city that I've just mentioned to you where those things take place. So it's been excavated, and they have found archaeological evidence that seems to point to the fact that this, this is the city 
um, where this took place at. So as King Saul defeats the Ammonites and saves the city, the people are uh, rallied around him. Later on in 1 Samuel chapter 31, Saul's body is hung on the walls of Bethshean, and the men of Jabesh-Gilead retrieve it and bury it here. Why? Maybe because he had helped them in their time of need. And so that was their way of uh, showing him back some respect. So the Ammonites. Okay, so that's who they're fighting. The Ammonites, if you remember, are descendants from Lot. Okay, so remember when Lot leaves Sodom and Gomorrah? He's in the mountains. His two daughters uh, get him drunk in different nights and sleep with him. And they have the, the Moab and Ammon. So the Moabite would come through Ammonites. So they joined Moab in invading Israel and taking Jericho in the days of Ehud. Okay, Ehud was one of the judges. He killed who? Oh, it's the one with the, with the back cave. Yep. Yeah, I don't remember who it was. Eglon. Eglon, okay. Um, they warred with Israel in the days of Jephthah. They were defeated, lost several border cities to him, and now they're attacking Jabesh Gilead. Okay? They're destroyed by the Israelites for not attacking um, the Benjamites. Uh, rebuilt and re-inhabited. This is the Jabesh Gilead. Um, the past history precludes the likelihood of other Israelites helping them. But Saul, you're used to but God, right? But Saul in this case, okay? Um, but Saul comes in and helps Jabesh Gilead, okay, in this situation. <clears throat> now, it might also be interesting to note that um, they didn't attack the Benjamites, and Saul is from Benjamin. So, the Ammonites <coughs> attack Jabesh Gilead. This here are remains that have been found at the palace um, what they think is, is a palace that maybe was like Saul's. So Saul, you got to think about what's going on again. I keep coming back to this idea that there's 12 different tribes, and there's not this centralized government, and he's the first. There's no one to look to. Like, how, how do you do this? Well, what have kings done in the past? Like, there are none. So, so what do you do? The only thing you have to look to is uh, maybe what Samuel said or what everybody else does. And so... He's trying to figure out how to do this. So he does not have lavish palaces and all this type of stuff that you'll see later on with Solomon. And he also is dealing with this Philistine issue. And so at, at this time period, yes, there's no Assyria and Babylon, there's no Egypt really being a big threat. But we still have the Philistines, and we still have some other peoples, the Ammonites, etc. And so Saul deals a lot of, spends a lot of his time putting out these skirmishes and dealing with kind of heavily, with the Philistines as well. We'll get to Goliath in a little bit. So his government would be very simple. Okay, No, no time for him to plan, and, and the people would not want an elaborate government at this point. It would not be easy for him to impose controls, because at this point, uh, the people are still those, those tribes. It's not the centralized government. So this site here was excavated by William Albright. He's kind of like, I call him kind of like the grandfather of, of archaeology or something like that. Um, those, and this, they think, was the royal residence of Saul. So uh, the site revealed 12 different levels of history, including an Israelite town referred to in Judges in 19 and 20, where it was destroyed by fire. So Saul's stronghold was erected around 1050 B.C. The outer citadel walls 
170 by 155 feet were 8 to 10 feet thick. The citadel is composed of two stories with a stone staircase, and the casemented walls and separately bonded towers are unique to this time period. So they found grinding stones, spinning wheels, cooking pots, burnished ware, game boards, uh, storage bins, etc. So the palace itself has a pretty simple design. Um, you can see kind of just some square rooms, some storage areas there, I think on the, on the bottom, uh, bottom right. So the remains of the fortress were destroyed in the 60s by King Hussein of Jordan, who began building a palace on the site. One of the things with archaeology is in the earlier days of archaeology, they weren't as careful. And so when they went in to find stuff and to dig, they, they destroyed a lot of stuff. And then the other thing you have is uh, people, some governments in the area are not interested in uh, Jewish history. And so they purposely wipe the places out. And then thirdly, you've got people who want to build on the site. And so in building on the site and preparing it for modern building, they end up often destroying or covering or both the uh, ancient archaeology artifacts that are there. So, all right, the next thing that we uh, encounter that we're going to look at is Gibeah. Okay, Judges 19 and 21 and 1 Samuel 11 have some parallels here as well. Um, Gibeah is mentioned in both of them. This is um, what I, I mentioned earlier with the Jabesh-Gilead incident. These are connected. When Israel had no king is, is Judges 19 to 21. But in 1 Samuel 11, it's the confirming event of Saul's kingship. You have the war cry that we talked about with the, the butchered oxen. And in Judges, it's a city destined for destruction. And in 1 Samuel 11, it's a city from which salvation comes forth. And so, as I mentioned earlier, in Judges 19, the Jabesh-Gilead refuses to join in the punishment against um, the Gibeonites. But here, uh, Jabesh-Gilead is besieged and asks Israel for help, and then Benjamin becomes the leader of the attack instead of being the object of the attack. And so... It's just uh, another comparison again with Jabesh Gilead and Gibeah um, with their relationship to one another. Gibeah was allotted to the tribe of Benjamin in Joshua 18.28. Um, just as another reference for you. So there is some confusion with the different uh, Gibeahs in, in the scripture and particularly in First uh, Samuel, and I don't know, is it my next slide? Yeah, I think here. So, <clears throat> if you look here, you can see what is called in, in Samuel, Gibeah of God is right here, and then Gibeah is here, and then Gibeon is here. So, they're all right next to each other. And you get these different cities mentioned, and so it gets very confusing very quickly, all right? So here is, again, you can put your finger right there and pretty much cover all three of them. So Gibeah is right on this ridge route road, okay? And then these other two are to the left of it. Gilgal, 
Joshua had camped here before crossing the Jordan River. So now in, in 1 Samuel, we are uh, up to... Saul's confirmation is the end of um, chapter 11, right after the deliverance at Jabesh Gilead, and his, his um, beginning of his, his public uh, ruling, if you will, in chapter 12, before we get to 13, with his failure and initial rejection. So at Gilgal, Joshua had been there before crossing the Jordan. We talked about that a week or two ago. They built the 12-stone monument there. They had been uh, circumcised and renewed the covenant. And then now in 1115, Saul is being coronated here. Saul will also be rebuked and rejected as king, all at Gilgal. So Gilgal carries a lot of history because of all of these significant events that are occurring or did occur at this one location. So after Saul is coronated, he's welcomed by the people. He is now the, the public and official king. It doesn't take long uh, before he's rejected. The Battle of Michmash is his first rejection. Chapters 13 and 14 in 1 Samuel. And this is his failure. 13 begins with this. It says, Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. He chose 3,000 men from Israel for himself. 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash and in Bethel's hill country, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. He sent the rest of the troops away, each to his own tent. Jonathan attacked the Philistine garrison that was in Gibeah, and the Philistines heard about it. So Saul blew the ram's horn throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear, and all Israel heard the news. Saul had attacked the Philistine garrison, and Israel is now repulsive to the Philistines. And then the troops were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines also gathered to fight against Israel, 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops as numerous as the sand on the seashore. In other words, there's a lot. They went up and they camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. The men of Israel saw that they were in trouble because the troops were in a difficult situation. They hid in caves, thickets among the rocks, and in holes and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul, however, was still Gilgal, and all his troops were gripped with fear. He waited seven days for the appointed time that Samuel had set, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the troops were deserting him. Okay, so Saul, I don't, I don't want to say completely in his defense, but so Saul is in a precarious situation. Okay, the, the fear of the people is increasing. The troops, some of them are deserting. There's an enemy to be fought, and Samuel has told him, wait till I get there. It'll be seven days. And, and, and seven days, we're on day seven, and where's Samuel? Like, got to do something. And so you know the saying, God shows up at what hour? The 11th hour, right? Yeah, but we don't want to wait all day long, God. And so that's what's going on right here, right? And so Saul gets impatient. And so what does he do? He's not a priest. Okay, he's king. Who's the priest? Samuel's the priest. He's prophet, priest, and judge. So one thing he's not, king. Saul is. They have different roles. And so Saul says, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And don't you like how it always does this? Verse 10. Just as he finished. Now it takes a little while to do a burnt offering, you know. You know, you got to slaughter animals and stuff and cook them up. So just as he finished, Samuel arrived. Whoops. So Saul went out to greet him. And Samuel said, 
what have you done? Like, that's the greatest, not even, you know, uh, we have some kids that call us every Wednesday um, if they want to ride for church. And so uh, they call, and they never say hi. They just immediately, can you pick us up? And so my son yesterday is like, they didn't even say hi. And I was like, no, they never do. <laughs> so it's kind of what this is. Samuel shows up, it's not, hey, Saul, how you doing? It's, what have you done? Like, that's, that's the first thing we have recorded out of his mouth, you know? And Saul says, well, I saw the troops were deserting me. I was afraid. You didn't come within the appointed days. The Philistines were gathering at Michmash. I thought the Philistines will descend on me at Gil- Gilgal, and I haven't sought the Lord's favor, so I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. And Samuel says, you have been foolish. You have not kept the command which the Lord your God gave. It was at this time the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel. Ouch. So if you had simply trusted in this one thing, you would have permanently been king. But you blew it. But the Lord has found a man loyal to him, and the Lord has appointed him as a ruler, because you have not done what the Lord commanded. So Saul is told right here, there's someone to replace you. God's already picked him. And Samuel went from Gilgal to Gibeah and Benjamin, and Saul registered the troops who were with him, about 600 men. Okay, so he's, he's lost a bunch of his men now. So, Michmash. The first rejection of Saul came after the renewed conflict with the Philistines, which occurred here at Michmash. The Philistines had been quiet since their defeat at Mizpah. But now, only two years after Saul's inauguration, they again entered the land and they encamped at Michmash, just four miles northeast of Gibeah. You can see on the map with the arrows, okay, what is going to take place here. So, they go from Gilgal to Jericho, okay, to Gibeah, all right? Then you have the Philistines, and they are in the uh, purple or blue, whatever color that is, all right? And they come together there at Michmash, which is right here in the middle. Okay? Michmash is present-day Mukamas on the northern ridge of the Wadi Suwani, east of Bethel, or Bethel, on the way to Jericho. The Arab village uh, preserves the name of the biblical city of Michmash. The town sits next to the pass, mentioned twice in the Bible. I'll have pictures of that in just a moment. Michmash was settled throughout the period of the monarchy, as it was mentioned in the account of Saul and Jonathan, and later in a prophecy of Isaiah. And so, Saul prepares to fight the Philistines by luring them into the hill country of Ephraim, north of Jabus, or Jerusalem. So, in an act of uh, defiance, Saul's son Jonathan uh, demolishes the Philistine pillar at Geba. I'll have a picture of that in just a moment. Um, Which is like a standing stone. So you have these stones that uh, stand up, and they put them there either as demonstrations of ownership, like we came, we saw, we conquered, you know? Um, you might keep up with the American flag, right? We, we conquered, we got to the moon or whatever. All right, so they got these pillars, or they are also places of pagan worship, okay? So it just depends on why it was put up there, okay? They're used for both things, all right? So... Saul summons the men of Israel to join him at, at Gilgal for this. All right, so the, the next, let me see what my order is here. All right, so this is just the, the same area, so blown up. Michmash is going to be where the battle takes place. Okay, this here is the, the landscape itself, okay, of Michmash. So again, you can see. Saul's trying to get them into the hill country. Remember, the Israelites lived 
primarily in the hill country, so that's what they're used to. Additionally, if it's on the in the hill country, you can't use chariots and, and stuff like that. So they have an advantage. Okay, this here is, um, I think this is the city of, of Giba overlooking this, and and then this one is the pass. And so you can see, so you see all the hills, and then you see the the ravine. Okay, so so the wadis are these dried up riverbeds, right? That are used on more than one occasion in scripture and outside of scripture by soldiers coming in to take a land. Um, and so that's what you have uh, that occurs in these passages also. And so you've got uh, Michmash, Giba, the pass. You've got the cliffs. Is that the next one? Yeah, so the cliffs. So you have both the, the wadi or the ravine and the cliffs. So when Jonathan scales these, okay, this is something like what he's going up to take on the Philistines. So it's actually um, only God, really, that enabled him to conquer. Because you, you, don't, you don't go up the side of a, a mountain uh, by yourself and your armor bearer against a bunch of soldiers and you kick all their butts and come out okay. You know what I'm saying? Like, it just doesn't happen. So that is um, God working through this situation as well. And so then this here is demonstrating, like, the importance of the pass. And so what you have is you have this, this, uh, this pass area that people would go through to cut through the mountains, all right, because you don't want to go up and down and up and down. So you're going to cut through the pass. And so what do you do at the pass if, if your people live there, if you have a town? Well, you fortify the town if it's an important pass, and you determine who can come and who can go. And you also can get tax revenue to that, uh, but you also keep the enemy out. So if you take the town, depending on what town we're talking about, we talked about this um, when we talked about taking Jericho, right? And then moving in, inland from Jericho to the next area. You take these areas, and that enables you to get to wherever these passes go. All right? So that's part of what's going on right here, right? The Mi'kmaq Pass ran along the floor of a steep-sided valley called Wadi Suwani, running west from Jericho in the Jordan Valley up through the hill country north of Jerusalem to Ramah. Okay? And so they're trying to get through this pass and take it. It goes up to Bethel as well. So about uh, 10 miles west of Jericho, the steep-sided pass is bordered by tall cliffs and was overlooked and controlled by two settlements, Michmash, which means hidden, just out of sight below the, the summit on the north ridge, and then Giba. So you've got Michmash and Giba, and they control this pass area. All right? So the Israelites rebelled against their Philistine overlords. Jonathan assembled the Israelite forces at Giba, and during the night he made a daring solo raid across the gorge with his young armor-bearer, killing 20 sentries guarding the Philistine camp at Michmash. As a result, the Philistines were thrown into confusion, and Saul was able to lead the main body of Israelites successfully against the panic-stricken enemy, pursuing the remnants of the Philistine army um, three miles to Beth-Avon, now uh, the Philistine village of Berta, halfway to Bethel. So about 100 years later, in 910 B.C., Giba was fortified to defend the Michmash Pass by King Asa of Judah. He recycled the timber and stone that had been used to build the Israelite defenses at Ramah after King uh, Basha of Israel abandoned the city and retreated to Tirzah. So Michmash is now occupied by the Palestinian village of Mukmas, um, and to the south of the site of Giba is above the Palestinian village of, of Giba. Okay, so the importance of passes 
um, in this area. Examples of standing stones, those are from um, Gezer. Okay. All right. So this uh, map here just demonstrates some of those cities put into perspective so you can see the area that they went to. Okay. Those high places. Um, I'll talk about those in a minute. So from Jabesh. The city that I showed you um, earlier, this one here. Let's see. That one, okay? That's the city of, of Giva, G E B A. Okay? That's the one that's southwest of Michmash. standing stones okay that you see here is something similar to probably what Jonathan was demolishing when it says in 1 Samuel 13 um, that Jonathan demolishes the Philistine pillars at Giva okay so that's why that picture is in there now this here is Saul's journey In 1 Samuel chapter 8, okay, Saul is now getting uh, a little bit older. So we're only in eight chapters, all right, but a lot of time has, has now passed. Saul has, or Samuel has appointed his sons Joel, or Joel, if you prefer the Hebrew uh, pronunciation, and Abijah to be judges at Beersheba. But they're dishonest men, so the people gather at Ramah and plead with Samuel for a strong king like all the other nations, okay? Um, Did I say that Saul was getting old? Yeah. Yeah, but no, Samuel. So when uh, when Saul was appointed uh, king, Samuel was getting old. So what you have here is from <coughs> Jabesh Gilead up up at the top here, and then if you go in here, you see here's Gibeah, there's Giva right there. Okay. Uh, Rama, Samuel's place. Here's Jerusalem, right here. Mizpah is over here, and then Jabesh Gilead is is up there at the top, right? All right. So as Saul continues in his his kingship, and He's already been rejected uh, once, and then he is rejected again. And so here he's told that he needs to, uh, in chapter 15, it's about 20 years later, his second rejection, where he again does not do all that Samuel has told him to do. Okay, so he's supposed to wipe out the Amalekites completely, 
this is just an artist uh, rendition of um, King Ahaz, I mean um, Agag, being taken out. And you know the story as well, that he uh, does not do what he's supposed to do there as well. So, so this is also the incident where, um, as the last pitch ex effort, he, um, he falls down and he grabs at the robe of uh, Samuel, and it rips, and then Samuel says, and so the kingdom has been torn out of your hands. Um, he uses that incident as a, a reversal and a play on what just happened to take care of that uh, situation. All right. So Saul's career, you can look at it in uh, three acts and, and three scenes. And so you see that uh, Saul meets Samuel, is anointed by him, success in battle with the help of God, and then his failure before Samuel and, and Jonathan. Then Saul um, meets Samuel, is condemned by him in chapter 15. He has success in battle with the help of David, who we're going to talk about next, and then his failure before David, and then he meets Samuel, and his death is foretold, and failure in battle and his suicide. So, although many people think Saul started out well and he had some humility, um, it did not end well for him at all. He demonstrates a lack of trust and faithfulness and, and obedience to what God has called him to do. And because of that, he loses what um, God desires for him. This is another picture simply uh, helping you understand where, where those are at. Notice the highways that are there as well. Saul's death is on Mount Gilboa in chapter 26 to 31. <clears throat> and then that is going to be the transition from him to King David. Uh, he did not prove to be the king that they, they thought that he would be. Uh, the area where Saul died had often witnessed significant Israelite victories. At the time of Deborah and Barak, the Canaanites filled the Jezreel Valley with their chariots, uh, but were defeated by the untrained and unequipped Israelite fighters. That's in Judges 4. Gideonites, uh, or Gideon's limited army also won a victory in the Jezreel Valley. We talked about that in the previous weeks, even closer to the scene of Saul's defeat. Uh, in his day, the Midianite raiders were camped in the Jezreel Valley near Mount Mora and Mount Gilboa, not far from Endor. Uh, that's where the quote witch or the Samuel was brought up uh, to talk. At the Lord's direction, Gideon used extraordinary faith-demanding tactics that you remember, the fleecing and the, the water that we talked about in Judges 7. And so this is all what's going on, um, why Mount Gilboa is an important place in uh, the storyline of the book. So the defeat of Saul in this region would affect the Israelite economy. As its Hebrew name suggests, the Jezreel Valley was suited for field crops, rich soil. We talked about that. The valley floor offered something almost as wonderful as grain. It provided ancient traders with the best convergence of the east, west, and north, south routes through the promised land. So in most places, the mountain ridges stood as roadblocks requiring travelers to climb and descend thousands of feet for passage. By contrast, in the Jezreel Valley, you could cross it with only 100 feet of elevation change. So the International Highway that went through the Jezreel Valley. We talked last week about some of the battles that occurred down there, okay, with uh, Deborah, etc. And so this area is a, a critical area to control, all right? And Saul continuing his battles with the Philistines. The Philistines are going to come up. Um, King Saul and his army are going to come up, and they are going to wage their, their final battle on Mount Gilboa. 
Saul's defiance and the Lord came to a, a head with his old enemies, the Philistines. And so up there is where the battle goes bad. Uh, both uh, Saul and uh, Jonathan die, and then that's going to be the end of it. If you remember the story at all, you know that um, uh, he does get somebody to um, finish him off, and they run to David thinking David's going to be all happy because David's been uh, having his own problems with Saul, and David's not happy about it because David had had multiple opportunities to take out King Saul, and it refused because uh, unlike Saul, who did not have the patience to wait on God, David demonstrated the patience to wait on God, at least in these situations. So, that's it. The high places, a quick note on this, they're common throughout the Canaanite society and Israelite as well. They're in cities as well as the countryside. Oftentimes in the cities, they would put them um, in, on the higher portion of the city. They're called high places because they're on the higher places. But they would come and worship, pagan worship at these places. Um, Although sometimes the Israelites used uh, high places also to build altars for God. The fullest description in 1 Samuel 9, and it mentions these different aspects. In this particular case, it looks like there's a hall or an eating area that you can hold at least 30 people. Um, they have cooks and kitchens, and storage rooms were likely, and an altar for the sacrifices. Um, Hezekiah was listed as one of the good kings because, in part because he removed these high places. Same thing with um, Josiah and others. All right, King David, he's the expansionist king. All right, 1010 to 970 BC is the time period we're looking at with uh, King David. King David was anointed way before he took um, office, if you will. He was anointed after Saul was rejected. We're only going to look at a few aspects of his life here. David is well known by many people. Most Christians like him, know him, etc. Um, but the Davidic covenant, I just want to make a, a few comments related to what God is doing in the scope of the scriptures. In Genesis 3.15, he had promised that there would be um, a war between the offspring of the, the serpent and um, the woman. And this plays out throughout scripture, okay? In Genesis 9, it's narrowed down to Shem. There's one bloodline. In Genesis 12, it's narrowed down to Israel. There's one nation. In Genesis 49, it's narrowed down to Judah, one tribe. In 2 Samuel 7, the promise to David, the Davidic promise and covenant, it's narrowed down to David, one family. In Isaiah 7, 14, it's narrowed down to a virgin-born son of David's line with a messianic prophecy, so it's one woman out of the one family, one tribe, one nation, and one bloodline. And in Micah 5, 2, it becomes narrowed down to the city of Bethlehem, the one city. So if you're looking at messianic promises in the scripture, you're looking at the likelihood or statistical likelihood that one person could fulfill these. Okay, this isn't even all of the 300 plus messianic prophecies. This is just saying you've got to be born in the right city from a virgin woman from the right family and the right tribe and the right nation and the right bloodline to even be considered. Not counting all the other prophecies. So, David, therefore, becomes a critical piece of this aspect, which is why in Matthew's genealogy, it, it traces Jesus back and mentions that he comes from the line of David multiple times. <coughs> and is structured to group the 14, which is the number 14 relates to David. So David comes on the scene, and we meet David as a, a young man, a teenager maybe, and he is a shepherd. Okay, He takes care of sheep. We learn that he can kill bears and uh, whatnot. I 
as he defends and protects his, his sheep. Um, David then enters into the, the <coughs> battle foray with Goliath. Everybody is shaking in fear against Goliath. If you remember, when Saul was chosen and coronated, Saul stood head and shoulders above everybody. Saul was handsome. Saul was this perfect Hollywood pit. But Saul was lacking in guts. And so what Saul is not willing to do, <coughs> shepherd boy comes up and says, God will do this. This guy's a punk and needs to be off the scene, referring to Goliath. And so David comes up. He doesn't use a sword. He doesn't have all that. He uses a sling. Now, slings were super um, powerful weapons. In a sense, it's kind of like a, a gun or a bow and arrow. Okay? He was out there with his sheep all day. He probably had plenty of time to practice. And the slingers of Israel and of the ancient Near East, I mean, they could peg you from very far away. They were like sharpshooters. Um, so don't think the sling was just some measly weapon. The sling was a, a great weapon. Um, but after he, he got the stone embedded in Goliath's head and he knocked, knocked down, then he took the, the sword and cut him off. So later, um, later uh, other country militaries, they would add a centerpiece. You ever wonder why those centerpieces are on some of their helmets? Yeah, that's so you don't get a stone in your forehead like Goliath. Um, so <coughs> David and Goliath enter the battle in the Elah Valley. Okay, So this is the, the map of it. This is the hill country right here. You've got the, the Shephala, which is that valley area again, the Elah Valley here, the Sorak Valley here. Um, harder to see, probably the further back you go, but uh, the topography falls away, and you see a, a flat, flat area there in the valleys, and you see them there as well. And so <coughs> David goes and encounters Goliath, and then when that happens, this is where the jealousy of Saul is going to begin to rise because there's going to become this, in Saul's mind, this competition between him and David, the popularity of the people versus him as, as king, his insecurity and his kingship. And so after David and Goliath meet in the Elah Valley, <coughs> okay, he moves on and... Then he is in En Gedi, chapters 18 through 25 of the book. <clears throat> After the victory over Goliath and the Philistines, David was riding a, a rising wave of popularity that offered him widespread support as Israel's leader. Um, but of course, there's a king there. David waited a long time between being told you're king and anointed and actually being in the chair. Um, the Lord had announced Saul's rejection, but Saul was of no mind to leave his throne quietly, and his changing moods could bring death to David at any minute. So David left Gibeah, which was Saul's headquarters, seeking refuge in places like um, Ramah and Nob. You know, what had happened at Nob? What did Saul do there? Nob? Nob, N-O-B. That's where he killed all the priests, right? So David yeah. went there, he was spotted, right? He killed the priests. So now you got the king killing the priest. So that kind of indicates the, the mood and his morality at this point. He um, lost it from his um, cold, uh, Samuel's cold. And then he yep. for wars to back this up, and he lost from Well, you already did that. Yeah, there's probably a, a digression, you know, mm -hmm. a spiraling down. I don't 
come you don't talk about the whole witch summoning thing or something? Like witch of Endor? Yeah, how come you don't talk about that? I'm a theological cousin. Yeah. Practice, no one really knows what happened. Say again? Practice, no one really knows what happened. What happened? What is the was, script? Was, the was, there a, was, was there a, a demon uh, going on there? Was it, uh, <laughs> I mean, exactly how does this, I mean. I said the paper. Sure, right paper. Uh, the, uh, the scripture tell us like like what happened and to some degree, but like it's spiritual stuff, you know. And so there's a lot of stuff that's just up in the air about it. Like it, it, exactly how does that work? I don't know. When's the last time you called up someone from the dead? Well, you're not supposed to, so don't do it. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So uh, you know, I, I don't really know exactly, but he did. Um, she sees this figure and she tells him what it looks like, and it's related to this robe. The robe is like the key thing. An old man has got this robe on. Um, he's like, oh, Samuel, what did he tell me? What did he say? Like, he always told me what what to do, you know, even if I didn't do it, right? Um, so what did he say? <coughs> so he recognizes. The woman sees. He recognizes. Um, and so some people think she seems a little, you know, freaked out that this actually just happened. So, so like, oh, yeah, she's probably fake. Well, whatever. Anyway. There's too much to kind of dissect. And it is weird. The point is, though, like Robert was saying, we're, we're again seeing um, how low, you know, he's going. You know, he'd already outlawed. She's not even supposed to be there, which he knows this, but since he disguised himself. Um, it's the same as uh, pagan cultures trying to um, figure out the future through omens and through bones and through stars and whatever, palm readings, horoscopes, you name it. So, but if you'd like to know more about it, I'd love to read your paper on it. So, En Gedi. So David goes to En Gedi, which is in the wilderness of Judah, west of the Dead Sea, and east of uh, the watershed line. So, um, this here is En Gedi, okay, down here by the Dead Sea. The crags of the wild goats, these are the wild goats that uh, inhabit the area. And in this area of Engedi, um, this picturesque oasis, um, it is an oasis area, which is why he went there, okay? Um, it provides water, it provides caves, and therefore you can hide and you can stay alive and still get uh, water, alright? So, the rugged and menacing terrain is dominated by narrow and deeply cut east-west gorges. The stony hillside shows little sign of life since the wilderness of Judah uh, lies within a rainfall shadow. Its canyons often accommodate torrents of water that speed toward the Dead Sea, but, but this is rainwater that has fallen elsewhere, water that enters and leaves the wilderness quickly, providing little life and support. So the wilderness in general is not very hospitable, right? That's the, the whole point of it. That goes back to Tohu Wabohu, right, Robert? Yes, sir. So it's uninhabited, okay? It's uninhabitable to some degree. Anyways, David was familiar with this area because he had lived in nearby Bethlehem, undoubtedly shepherding the family flocks in the hills. So life would not be comfortable here, but if one could find access to water, the wilderness could provide security. And that's what makes En Gedi a place for him to escape. 
in the midst of the rugged landscape that provided dozens of caves and a dry riverbed, a wadi, where he could hide. Yet, unlike most of the surrounding area, it had drinkable water. So, while David used this setting to hide, it became a proven ground for his character. Saul's hunt for David eventually brought him to En Gedi, to the very cave in which David and his men were hiding in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 3. As the unwitting Saul used the cave as a bathroom, David's men urged him to do what? Get sure. rid of him. David refused. So this is the, the character and the integrity that you see of David. Now, just as a side note, you don't see that character and integrity when it comes to Uriah and Bathsheba later on. So, you see the opposite. Wasn't, wasn't that driven by a fear of being found out? Well, most oh, likely, not, to I'm some not, degree. I'm but not justifying that question. No, I know. Yeah, I mean, he was definitely trying to cover it up. Right. So, I mean, that's the whole reason he brought Uriah back to the war. Which, obviously, by the way, took a bunch of time. It's not like he threw him back. But anyway. So, uh, he would not do that, though. And so, that's where David was hiding out, in Gedi. All right, Bethlehem is right there, if you didn't catch it. So, Bethlehem is there, and Gedi is there. All right? And on the map, that's five miles, so... Okay, so this is some of the journey that Saul chases David through, right? In his, his travels in the wilderness as he's being chased around. So you, you can see that he didn't just stay in one spot, but he had to uh, run around quite a bit. Saul and his forces began closing in on David in chapter 23, verse 26. Um, they, they, they basically encircled him, suggesting that Saul may have been seeking to catch David and some kind of a, a pincer movement by sending troops around the crag in two different directions. And so they're trying to fence him in here. Um, so that's En Gedi. Um, Saul then dies, which we just talked about. All right. Um, I've got a question on that. Yeah. Did he commit suicide by cop? But someone chopped his head off, or finished him off. He, he instructed the guy to kill him. Yeah, so, I mean that's what finished him off. Is that suicide? Assisted suicide. Assisted suicide. <laughs> people argue about that here. Dying people in hospitals to have that right. Saul was lost when he died, right? I studied it out a long time ago, and uh, I kind of gave up on trying to know the answer to it. I don't, I don't, I don't know that it's, I mean, it's important to some degree, but on the other hand, uh, I mean, we know what he did was wrong, you know, we know where he went wrong, we know the things he did that were wrong, we know, is it possible you could do some of those things and have a relationship with God? Well, I mean, Saul, look at Saul in his life, you know, Saul, Solomon did. 
good things that he definitely should not have done. So then you look at 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11 is a big one for me. So in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that people are um, being killed by the Lord uh, because of their sin. Some of you are weak, sick, and asleep. Asleep means dead. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's written to Christians. God's judging his people that way. I mean, we know all through the scriptures he, he judges. When uh, when cities fall and Babylon comes and, and whatever else happens, um, it's not just the unfaithful that are caught up in that. The faithful are taken out also. So. Okay. <clears throat> okay. So... David's first capital, okay, is down in Hebron, okay? So remember, Saul's was in Gibeah, so that's up here, all right? Now, David is going to move his capital to Jerusalem. Now, that's probably politically a good move. Um, Jerusalem was more neutral territory. <coughs> Jerusalem was a, a border area between Benjamin and Judah, and so one of the things that he's doing is he's bringing Benjamin and Judah together on a fairly neutral area, okay? So he's going to take this city, which was controlled by others, and then he is going to take that area, and by bringing Benjamin and Judah together, that's going to begin to bring even all the rest of them together and to set up shop, so to speak, in a, a neutral area. It also has some geographic features that are, are beneficial, um, it is a little bit harder to get to, uh, but it's fairly well protected, at least on three out of four sides. So <clears throat> there are some geographic benefits. There's some political benefits, um, some, some policy aspects to it. So when Saul died, David could stop running. Okay, And now David can begin to transition and move to where he's actually on the throne. And so he's got to uh, find a place to rule from. And so the first seven, seven and a half years, I think, is in Hebron, and then he'll move that to Jerusalem. So, <clears throat> during this time period, Greece is entering the Dark Ages. <clears throat> China, to the far east, was undergoing a revolution of its own with the Zhou Dynasty usurping the Shang Dynasty. The mines of Central America began to expand across the Lowlands and the Aramaeans to the north were expanding into Mesopotamia, causing conflict with Assyria, which was also rising in power. Egypt was preoccupied with its own civil war between the north and south. So this is what's going on in the time of David. So there's still this vacuum aspect, but things are beginning to build. Remember, so David's going to reign for 40 years and Solomon for 40, right? So we've got about 80 years before give or take, before we're going to begin to see what uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah write about or what happens to the kings as Assyria and Babylon enter the picture. Okay, uh, David was a expansionist. Okay, David expanded much of the area. Edom and the Arabah Desert secured the Israelite economic viability due to natural resources, which helped create weapons to save off the Philistines. And to the north, he conquered... Um, Areas of Aram or Aram, um, which remember Aram is the same as Syria, so that's in this area right here. Assyria is here, Syria is here. All right. 
So David expands the area. Remember, if you're thinking about kings and, and how to uh, delineate them, uh, David was a man of war. Solomon was the opposite. He's a man of peace. All right? He married. <coughs> David fought. Um, and if you think about it, really that's, that's been David's whole life. He practiced protecting the sheep, and then from Goliath on, and he's been running from uh, Saul for years prior to assuming the throne. Solomon, on the other hand, is brought up in the palace, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, right. Can, you, can you comment on his, uh, and this is general, he tried, it looks like he moved across the side of Jordan to try to True. secure that. Is our the land east of the Jordan considered to be part of the covenant of promise and do they constitute a part of Israel? Was David right in trying to well, it says in, God said he'd give him from, uh, basically from Egypt to Mesopotamia, actually. So, the short answer would be yes. Um, and then when, when the tribes settled, we know two and a half of them took the east of the Jordan River. So right. So that's Transjordan. Right. So that, if you use the raw wording of the text, is Israel is at the part of Abrahamic Legacy. Yeah. I mean, he does in a couple places. I think it's in Deuteronomy. I think it's also in uh, Joshua. Um, kind of from river to river. Talking Egypt and Mesopotamia. So, I mean, that's a very big area. But, but currently, Israel does not have in its territory anything east of the Jordan. That's Jordan and um, uh, what's that one on the top? Is it, or is it all Jordan? I'd have to look at the map. Oh, okay. Sorry. Just curious. Yeah. All right. So Solomon. His name comes from Shalom, meaning peace. It's a time of peace and prosperity with Solomon. Okay, um, he's he's after wealth, women, and wine. That's kind of that's him. Assyria is in a period of decline. Egypt is in decline, like we already mentioned. He has alliance with Hiram of Tyre, so he has alliances with the Phoenicians, and he is going to be a king of alliances. He makes alliances all over the place. Um, yes, the empire. Which one of them is going to be his Trojan horse? But um, the empire from Mesopotamia to Egypt. Okay. So, from Mesopotamia to Egypt. So, this is the, the high point of their ex expansion, okay, after David and Solomon. Okay, they really do, Robert, to some degree, have what you're talking about here, all right? Um, he reorganized the nation into 12 <coughs> districts. I put taxes in parentheses because uh, that's probably part of the reason. It's much easier to tax them if you've got some organizational uh, structure to it. He's a master billsman, tradesman, and wiseman. Okay? What bugs me about him is with all his wisdom, he never saw. I, 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 I'm conflicted with this person. Yeah, because he of what he's doing. He's going directly it. against God's word and marrying these people to mm -hmm. provide peace. Yeah. Um, how, how do we reconcile that? And he was the wisest man. I, I, I've never been able to grasp that since I've been a Christian. He didn't live it. 
So he just talked it, but he never walked it. Well, actually, I, I wouldn't say never. I would say he. Ch- I would say there's a okay. change in his life. I, th- I think in the beginning he did, at least to some degree. I think as his life continued on, I mean, the same with Saul, um, even the same with David, and all of them, as as the the life continued, um, it, they seemed to make these mistakes or sins or rebellious acts. So it is an interesting thing because we have scriptures that we read. Uh, written by him, you know, and so how do you how do you have that wisdom, but then you make these kinds of decisions? You know, wisdom is lived out knowledge. So if if you don't live it out, it doesn't matter that you have it. It's knowing how to apply the knowledge and discerning um, when to apply what where. So if you don't choose to do that, right, then the gift doesn't do you much good. You gotta exercise the gift. Okay. So in First Kings, okay, one through four, Solomon at Gibeon. So by the end of the second chapter of First Kings, okay, the kingdom and its capital city Jerusalem were firmly established, it says, in Solomon's hands. First Kings chapter two, verse forty-six. Yet when Solomon went to worship, he traveled to Gibeon, the place where the Lord gave him his incredible wisdom. And here we see that Solomon ruled from Jerusalem, but worshipped in Gibeon. At one level, it makes sense because the temple hadn't yet been built in Jerusalem, so they were using the various high places like Gibeon for worship. During the early days of Samuel, the tabernacle was at Shiloh. Then we find it at Nob during David's early days, 1 Samuel 21. But now this important structure had been moved to Gibeon, only a few miles north of Jerusalem. Thus, the high place at Gibeon was deemed the most important because the tabernacle and the great altar were there, representing the Lord's presence. So... Solomon travels there to pray and to make sacrifices. Um, and so David had moved the Ark of the Covenant uh, to Jerusalem. So why hadn't he brought the tabernacle there? Uh, part of that may lie in the fact that Gibeon and not Jerusalem was designated as a Levitical city, one of the 48 cities staffed with priests, according to Joshua 21.8. In these Levitical cities, Gibeon was very centrally located. It was in Benjamin where the internal uh, north-south, east-west roadways cross one another, making travel to and from it much easier. Jerusalem is not the easiest place um, to get to. So when the temple gets uh, built there, and the place of worship becomes at Jerusalem, that was uh, more difficult for some people to get to than uh, where it had previously been located. (coughs) So he goes there anyways um, to worship. So Gibeon is just north of Jerusalem, but it's the terrain uh, that makes the difference. And so, uh, here's here's your roads that you would you would come on down. The in um, Gibeon, I believe also. I think these up here, these are um, what is it they stored? These are um, reservoirs in the ground for. Um, like that. Anyways, so the altar and the tabernacles, some kind of a rendition of it right there for you. Prior to the making of uh, the temple, the building of the temple, which Solomon will do shortly. And so he goes there for that. This is all portable. Right? This here is the big altar structure for the uh, offering of the animals. All right, so 
then um, Solomon will begin to build the, the temple. All right? Jerusalem that uh, David had taken and made his capital, the, the city of David, begins to uh, be the place where the temple is going to be built. And Solomon continues to expand uh, the city of Jerusalem. You can see on this map the bottom portion, this blue or purple or whatever that is, that's the area that was, it's called the city of David because that's what the uh, allotment was at the time of David. So Solomon expands it to include this area here. And so you can see that that is an expanded city during uh, Solomon's time period and reign. Um, Solomon's Trojan horse, we're running out of time here, so I just want to touch on a couple more things, I think. The temple uh, complex in Jerusalem was the most magnificent thing that, that Solomon built, but it wasn't the only thing he built. He was a builder. He spent a lot of time, in fact, twice as much time building structures for his own self, which if you look at the narration of the book of Kings, that's actually a turning point in his life. When you see uh, his focus change from God's temple and God's building to his buildings. So his passion to strengthen the security of his kingdom motivated him to initiate other construction projects and alliances. Okay, So Hazor, Megiddo, Lower Beth Haran, Abalith, and Tadmor all experienced design enhancement during the reign of Solomon. Yet no fortified city was important to the enduring security of Jerusalem as Gezer, a city Solomon received as a wedding gift, 1 Kings chapter 9, uh, verse 16. During the early days of Solomon, Egypt was politically divided and struggling to assert power beyond its own borders. During the reign of Pharaoh Selman, the Egyptian army advanced against the Philistines. As is often the case, the dispute motivating the incursion may have been money, since the Philistines controlled the international highway in this sector of the world, a dispute over trade rights or taxation is what probably brought the Egyptian soldiers to the Philistine soil. It's somewhat uncertain whether Israel participated with Egypt in the war against the Philistines or was merely an additional target on their agenda. But in either case, um, the Pharaoh formed an alliance with Solomon and offered one of his daughters in a marriage designed to seal the treaty. During the campaign, um, he captured Gezer, he burned it, and then gave it to Solomon as a wedding gift. So this um, gift was pretty valuable. It promised its residents an abundance of water, fields for growing uh, grain and green pastures for their flocks. But it also was right at the international highway and at the mouth of the Ajalan Valley that promised a greater reward. This valley was so wide that it resembled a plain much more than it does an enclosed valley. It departs the coastal area as an inviting road heading east toward Beth Haran, a natural ramp leading into the central mountains and into the plateau of Benjamin, which means it's into the Israelite territory. From there, it turns south and a short walk led directly to the northern edge of Solomon's Jerusalem, which means it also leads to the capital city. The natural east-west roadway that connected Jerusalem with its seaport at Joppa and with the International Highway flowed right past Gezer. It was the gateway that created an international trade market for the residents of landlocked and mountain-enclosed Jerusalem, which means hello taxes, right? Toll booth taxes. So 
If one of the armies of the ancient world wished to bring their weapons rather than trade goods to the capital of Israel, they too would march right past Caesar on that very route to attack Jerusalem. In fact, the future history of the city bears out that that's exactly what happened. And so Solomon received this as a wedding gift. He captured many cities, he fortified and enhanced the security. Um, but in making a treaty with Egypt, he took the Pharaoh's daughter as a wife. And in this, he turned his heart away from God, 1 Kings chapter 11, 1 and 2. And this, later on, is going to cause a problem. And Solomon's divided heart is going to lead to a divided kingdom. So, this map here shows the international highway. So here's your highway coming all through here. And here's your city right there. It's also very close, as I mentioned, to Joppa, and it's not too far from um, Megiddo either, which are right there on the coast. So you can see in this map a couple of the highways that were important for them. The King's Highway runs here, and the International Highway runs more over towards the coastline, connecting Egypt all the way back over going towards Mesopotamia. So that there was the, the gift that he received, and this enabled him most likely to increase his wealth quite a bit by controlling uh, the trade that was going on here. This is the last slide I have. I only have it in here because it's mentioned in your, your textbook. Um, this is Masada. Um, Masada comes into play much later in Israelite history. Um, it, it's it's hundreds of years uh, later. This is a fortress that uh, when the Romans, so we're in AD time period, um, the the Romans were trying to get rid of kind of the last group of Jewish rebels, and uh, they pinned them here, but they they couldn't take the place. As you can see, um, it's a mountain. Um, King Herod had this as a as a fortress, as a desert place, and he didn't have a chopper to get to it. Um, when the Romans finally got there, they did. They eventually, they built a ramp. Um, and when they finally got to the top, the Jews had killed themselves. They had decided that rather than be taken by the Romans, after all this long fight, they would kill themselves. Um, it's a long movie, but if you're into this type of thing, um, it's mm -hmm. a fascinating movie. It's called Masada. It's like a six-hour movie. Six hours. <laughs> I went to, when we went to Israel, I, I went to Masada. Yeah. That's a, a miniseries. Yeah. So, anyways, I found it Six interesting. Six-hour movie. Yeah. I watched it years ago. So, anyways, um, when I first heard about Masada, and then I was studying that, you know, about the Jews, I was like, what, what? And I saw there's a movie, so I was like, okay, I'm going to watch it. Anyways, um... So that's it. So it's in your textbook. He talks about it because it's, it's in the area. Um, but uh, historically, it's, it's really not a, a big player un until a little bit later. Right. So we're done for today. If you have any questions, you can uh, ask me. I will try to get your, your quizzes up and, and ready uh, for tomorrow, if at all possible. I've had a super busy week. Um, and it's not over yet.